It may start with small things, getting lost on a familiar route, forgetting passwords and pin codes, or the pot on the stove, having difficulty learning how to operate a new gadget. All things that happen occasionally to most people as they get older. But for around 850,000 people living in the UK today, it has led to a devastating diagnosis, dementia. I'm Ramona Ali, and in this edition of Things Unseen, I'll be exploring how much of a role faith can play in making the lives of people with dementia and their families more satisfying and meaningful, and what churches and other faith communities can do to meet their spiritual needs. With me for this programme, which is part of our mental health season, are three guests. Margaret Goodall, a Methodist minister and chaplaincy development manager for the charity MHA, which provides care for more than 16,000 older people across Britain. Margaret has been involved in spiritual care for dementia patients for over 20 years. On the line from Bradford is Akhlaq Rauf, who works for a social services initiative called Meri Yade, or My Memories, and takes a particular interest in the needs of Muslims, Hindus and Sikhs with dementia and their families. And from Staffordshire University, we have Peter Kevin, a theologian and former trainer of Christian ministers, who began to take a particular interest in dementia after his own mother developed the disease. Peter, your mother was a woman of strong faith, from a strict Baptist background. What went through your mind when you saw her developing dementia? I think for a number of years, I was in denial about what was going on. But when her symptoms became impossible to ignore anymore, some of the questions that were troubling me were around what's happened to the woman of strong faith? Because for her, it was very important that she'd made a decision to follow Christ, that she was looking forward to an eternity with God because of her faith. And yet that woman seemed to be slipping away. So that raised some theological and philosophical questions as well as personal ones about what happens next, where's she gone and what am I supposed to make of this? Margaret, you've trained many chaplains working with dementia patients. How would you advise them or anyone else to go about befriending a dementia patient and finding out what their spiritual needs might be? When someone first goes in to visit people with dementia, usually they're scared because you don't know what reaction you're going to get. So the first thing we do is to ask them to take things slowly and not to be in their face, but to gradually get to know them, either by being introduced by members of the family or a member of staff if they're in a care home, and watch for the little things that actually make meaning for them. So it's a bit like detective work. Oh, definitely detective work. Akhlaq, in South Asian communities, whether they're Muslim, Hindu, Sikh or Christian, what role does religion play in families' decision on how to look after a mother or father with dementia? Across South Asia, there are deep cultural dynamics within religion. So these would entail things like taking care of your elderly parents, they've raised you, so now it's your duty of care to look after them in their old age. You know, in Islam it's said that, you know, heaven lies under the feet of your mother. You might see Hindu families who'll be touching the feet of their parents as a sign of respect. The Quran itself tells you about not even to say the word uff to your parents. So it's when you're fed up with something, it's uff, you know, or uh, they're annoying me. So when your parents are in need of care, you will rely on your faith as they would on theirs, that they would accept what's happening and you would care for them 
Now, the issue that arises is that the right level of care, whether it's from within the home or to be able to access care from outside because of these issues of taboos surrounding mental ill health. Before we take this any further, let's hear the voice of someone who knows dementia inside out because she herself was diagnosed with it around four years ago. Sheila Robinson lives in Crewe in Cheshire and despite her illness and her 74 years, she still works as a counsellor. She told me how she first noticed that something was seriously wrong. I was having difficulty with spatial awareness. I was finding driving more difficult, or certainly parking more difficult. And I've never been very good with numbers. I'm, I'm a words person. But I was finding that I was getting numbers wrong all the time. It might surprise some people that you're still working as a counsellor. It's what I do and it's who I am. And I think, I, well, no, I'm not going to say that. I know I still do it well. For example, how do you manage to remember what a client told you in a previous session? Most counsellors take notes, and even before I had Alzheimer's, it was my practice to read the notes before I started a session so that I could remind myself of anything I wanted. And strangely enough, that kind of memory hasn't been affected at all. You know, my memory is fairly good, strangely enough. It's things. Some days I'm fine and I could cook a meal in the old way. Other times I couldn't even remember how to start doing it and getting the things in the right sequences. And I also get lost in sequences. So silly things, like some days I can sit and look at a pair of slacks or at a pair of tights and think, oh, where does it go? Where do the bits go? You know, where are the holes? So it's things like that that, that I find difficult, or looking at the cooker and thinking, how do I set the timer? But sitting down with a client doesn't seem to be affected. When you received your diagnosis, Sheila, how did that make you feel? I felt as if the world had ended. I know Alzheimer's very well. I was the sole carer for a very dear friend, and I saw it to its, its awful end. And although I knew something was wrong, I was kind of praying that it wouldn't be that. So I went home and put my head under the duvet for a couple of hours before I could speak to anyone. So you've been a Quaker for the last 25 years. How important has your faith been since your diagnosis? It's been the most important thing, equally to the love and care of my family. I wrote an article about it almost immediately because it was important to me as a Quaker, to be honest and truthful about it and not to try and hide it. Do you feel that dementia has actually developed your relationship with God? It's really hard to say because God has been so important a part of my life since I was a small child. I've become more trusting and more accepting since the dementia. I'm really not afraid and I think that has something to do with my faith. So do you feel that God is close to you in your illness? Absolutely. I feel absolutely enveloped by God's love and have done more and more as the illness has gone on. The 23rd Psalm is more and more important to me that as I enter this different valley of darkness, someone, I don't really know who or what God is, I just know that God exists and that person is there. When I'm afraid God's there, when my family are crying tears for me, God is crying tears with them. Sheila Robinson. Margaret, we heard Sheila saying there how important her personal faith is to her. Mm. How often do you see that in dementia patients? Very often, even in people who, on their forms, it says they have no faith and they're not church members. 
people seem to find great comfort, just like Sheila was saying, from the words of the 23rd Psalm or the words of the Lord's Prayer, because it seems to reach something on the emotional level that's really deep. In the dementia patients that you, you've encountered, how do you feel they tend to express their personal faith? The early stages, people can access a lot of things for themselves, their hymns, the prayers, the ritual that they want to belong to. But later on, it's up to people who visit them, people who come alongside them, to prompt to start the Lord's Prayer so that they can then join in and say it for themselves. It's very hard for people later on to access these things for themselves. And Akhlaq, do you see the same strong need and desire for continued religious practice, which Sheila and Margaret described in people with dementia, from South Asian backgrounds? I think in many ways, some of the South Asian families are more, if I can use the word, practising that they engage with their faith on a day-to-day basis, that it becomes a part of the daily living. So for somebody then to have dementia, do they use their faith to accept that this is fate for me, it is predestined that I would have dementia, therefore how do I choose to live my life? And the Quran then, I absolutely agree with Sheila when she talks about using the 23rd Psalm. The Quran is also full of verses that tell you how a human grows up, matures, and then declining is like becoming like a child again. So whether that's their behaviour, their communication, their ability to do the tasks, and it encourages the children to look after them in the way that they looked after them when the children themselves were children. So what about the religious awareness surrounding food and customs? Is there a sensitive issue there? I think the fear that it puts into the hearts and minds of some of the carers is that if their loved one is in a care setting outside the home, then will they be looked after in the same way that the family would? So if we're talking about things like the diet, we know that the Muslim community would eat only halal meat, We may come across some Sikh people who perhaps will eat meat but definitely won't eat halal meat. What if you have somebody who, because of their dementia, is adamant that they will eat food that, from a religious perspective, they definitely wouldn't eat? That's where it gets complicated. Peter, we heard how much her relationship with God means to Sheila. What have you concluded about how people with dementia can think about their relationship with God? Obviously, people with dementia are typically forgetting things, forgetting not just facts, but how to do things and what things are like. But I think we can be fairly confident that a lot of religious beliefs and moods and orientations can be very persistent right into late-stage dementia because things that you acquire early in life, that you repeat all the way through your life, that mean something very important to you, that have a lot of emotional resonance, seem to imprint themselves right the way through, not just at the conscious level, but right deep into the subconscious. And they can be very persistent. I mean, my own mother was in the last stages, she was completely uncommunicative. She didn't even make eye contact. She was completely locked into herself. And yet my father says that on the day that she died, just a few minutes, maybe five or ten minutes before she died, she spontaneously got out of the chair, which was not something she'd ever done before, and she knelt down on the ground. And in his mind, she was aware that she was dying, and that last sort of spark of faith sort of kicked in and said, this is a moment at which I pray before I die. 
I wasn't there, I can't comment, but it's plausible that her faith was deep enough that it could actually do that right at the last. So, you know, thinking about your mother, what have you concluded about how people with dementia can think about their relationship with God? Obviously, in relation to my mother, I thought about this quite a lot, but I also sort of cast around in the literature to see what people with dementia were saying about their own sort of hopes and fears for their faith. And there really seemed to be three ways that people were talking about this. So quite a lot of people were saying, I have faith in a God who will always sort of hold on to the core of me, that if you dig down deep enough in me, there is a bit that will never change, and that is my soul. That will always stay the same, and God will simply lift that, as it were, into eternity when I die. And then there were a few more who were saying something rather more difficult, which was just as Christ died completely before Christ could rise again. So I think I'm basically going to be going into the dark and I just hope that God will be there waiting for me when I come back out into the light on the other side. And then finally, there's a couple of people who were saying, do you know, it's no longer important to me now what happens to me after I die, so much as the fact that I'm living in a sort of eternity now, that God is sufficiently present now, that this moment is all the eternity that I need to be worrying about right now. So, I don't know, you pay your money and he takes your choice. <laughs> I can see reasons to go with any one of those. And I think sometimes you just have to work with whatever you believe works best for you at the time. Margaret, why is it that the memory of faith often stays with people with dementia quite late into the illness? When people have dementia, it's the, the things, the directions, the connection memory that seems to disappear but the emotional memory remains. I can remember giving communion to one lady and as I got the bread and wine out, she, who hasn't spoken for so long, said God bless you to me and had a tear in her eye. Now there are people who say that actually we shouldn't bother with giving communion to people because they don't know what they're doing but it was obviously a very important moment and I'm told that after those sorts of events have happened, the person is left with a peace that they didn't have before. Yeah, faith memory is, is an emotional yeah. memory. Yeah. Yeah. So faith, of course, is not just about the individual. It's about being part of a community and worshipping in a community. Let's hear a little more from Sheila Robinson on how she experiences her religious practice and her community as a Quaker. In some ways, Quakerism, is, I'm not proselytising in any way now, but the simplicity and the stillness of Quakerism, the idea that we find our strength in silence, is actually very good for dementia. You know, I can go to a meeting and moving into the silence is, is just good for me. And so is the idea that I live my life simply. The more simple life is, the better. So for me, my faith has been perfect for what I'm going through. And how important is the support of your Quaker community? Oh, absolutely. Very early on, um, a very dear friend suggested I read a Quaker booklet called On Hallowing One's Diminishments. And that really spoke to me. It was, you know, I can be miserable and I can be independent or I can ask for help and have the grace of, of other people's love. And that just made a huge difference to me, that it wasn't just about you know, asking for help, but it was about 
asking for help, I enter into a transfer of grace. And also my Quaker friends are just so open about it. They've taken with great joy to my little granddaughter who, when she was four, couldn't say Alzheimer's and said fizzy hammers. And so in our family we say fizzy hammers and so do my Quaker friends. There was a bad occasion when I was very tired and went to meeting and was looking around for somebody who who died some time ago. We were all talking about people who were ill and, and you know who'd been to see them. And I suddenly said, what about Averill? You know, no one's mentioned Averill. And somebody came and put their arms around me and said, it's Fizzy Hammers is visiting you today. Averill's died, don't you remember? So that ease with it and, and lack of embarrassment has made such a difference to me. What would you say to other Quakers and other churches about what people with dementia need? They need to be accepted in the community. They need to be loved. And they need, if they don't do it, to be reminded to keep their prayer life alive, I think, and to have people join in with them if necessary. It grieves me when I hear, as I, on the, the forum that the Alzheimer's Society had, someone was writing that her father had been asked not to come to church anymore. I pray that that doesn't happen to any Quakers, but it might if people are difficult really difficult but it can be worked around with enough will enough goodwill and can professional carers also help with uh, that spiritual fulfillment for people suffering from dementia i think they can i think that professional carers probably don't do it as much as they might do because we're all body mind and spirit and it doesn't matter where your spirit finds its home it would be good if that could be addressed as well Sheila Robinson. Akhlaq, the community aspect we heard about there is usually very strong for Muslims, Sikhs and Hindus. What would you encourage these communities to do in order to support people with dementia and their families? There's some really key work that's actually taking off um, and that surrounds the dementia-friendly communities aspect, particularly for the older generations. Faith is a key part of their personality, their person. So, for example, when you're having a bad day, to be able to just look up and say, Alhamdulillah, thank you, God. I know you're watching me. I'm struggling, but you're there. So faith is used in a way to keep that connection with your own personality. So if we look at things like the mosques, the temples, the gurdwaras, we need to look at, does the congregation have an acceptance of dementia? Or is there ignorance? Do they know that there may be certain types of behaviour shown by somebody who tends to sit at the front of the congregation? Does the imam, the priest, the vicar, are they able to address the congregation to support the person that's got dementia, who's behaving in an irrational way? Or is the congregation going to say, actually, you're spoiling our worship, so therefore you shouldn't come and we're hearing something in Sheila's talk to that effect. If faith is important, then they should be able to provide that support within places of worship. And certainly in Bradford, there is one Gurdwara that I can think of that is working on um, dementia friendly communities work. There is a new mosque that's being built and they're going to be looking at their building from a dementia friendly perspective. So I think there is quite a lot of movement in that direction. Margaret, how important is communal worship with its liturgies and set prayers for people mm. with dementia? It's really important because if there's a continuity and a consistency within worship, then people find it easier to access because there's something to hold the experience so they feel more able to relax into it. 
And do you feel that music and hymn singing mm. can also oh, help? Oh, yes. Music reaches the bits that other things can't because I don't think there's one soul receptor in the brain that accesses music. And music has a pattern which, again, holds the person and enables them to relax into it. Having a regular beat will enable the person to feel connected where other things might be chaotic. There's something that they can, yes, bodily and emotionally and spiritually, they can tap into. Definitely music for the soul. Absolutely. <laughs> so how can you encourage congregations to include and embrace dementia patients, even those whose behaviour might be a little bit challenging, like calling out during services or, or wandering around? Mm. I think the first thing to do is to not be afraid of it to get to know the person and to accept that person with his or her weaknesses and foibles, just like we all have. Of course, it's not just the dementia patients themselves who have spiritual needs. There are the families too. Akhlaq, for South Asian families, if they do need to rely on professional care, there's often quite a lot of guilt involved, isn't there? How do you handle that constructively? If I felt that as a son it's my duty to care for my mother or my father, then surely it's in their interest for me to get the best help available and even if that means paid care from outside. So sometimes it's, it's about having that conversation. There is a big but with this as well. Within some families, we have to work out who is the actual decision maker. So the actual carer that does the day-to-day -day tasks may not be empowered to be able to say, well, actually, I can't cope. The decision maker might be somebody else. So it's about professionals being able to work out who's the right person to talk to, who's the next of kin, who's the decision maker, who's the one that kind of has that power and authority within that family setting to be able to have some negotiation so that you can build in packages of care or some respite in a way that's meaningful for that family. And Margaret, you see guilt in, in Christian families too if they cannot look after their loved one, don't you? Mm. So what do you say to them? It's about acknowledging what is possible. And sometimes we try to encourage the families to think about the time they can spend with their loved ones when, if they are being looked after by other people, they haven't got the day-to-day -day things to think about, like whether they've had enough sleep or whether they've had a bath. Somebody else is doing that. So they can concentrate on sitting with them, talking with them, encouraging and reinforcing the relationship they've got with each other instead of having to worry. So it's quality time more than the 36-hour day, as one dementia book says. The well-known story of the Good Samaritan has a bit at the end that people tend to forget. So the Good Samaritan picked up the person that everyone else left behind, nobody wanted anything to do with, and took him to an inn and then paid money for him to be looked after and said, when I come this way again, if I owe you some more, I will pay you. So I don't think Jesus was talking about dementia, but the fact that the Good Samaritan knew he could not look after the person in the way that was needed. And it's about recognising that sometimes, however painful that is. We're now seeing a generation getting older, which is in many cases not very religious, I'm talking about the baby boomers. What, if any, spiritual needs do they have and how can we meet them, Margaret? 
Spiritual needs are something that goes beyond a formal religion. It's got to be something that makes meaning and gives purpose to a life. So something that's beyond the everyday. And it's being, as you said, beginning a detective and recognising through attentiveness the things that bring life to that person. I mean, in the beginning of the Bible, the spirit was breathed into people and gave them life. So whatever gives us life, we think, is a spiritual thing. It could be a poem or a, or a picture. Yeah, it's stories, it's music, it's what gives meaning, it's what's special for that person. So when we train our chaplains, we ask them to discover, by detective work, what story, what poem, what piece of music actually brings that person to life. And then we share that with the staff so that when the person is down they can share it with them and reinforce the circle and encourage them. Peter, we've talked a lot about what can be done for people with dementia, but I wonder whether they are not doing something for us as well. What would you say we can learn from them? The most obvious thing is that we're more than just our minds and we're more than just our performance in the world. You know, we've got it into our heads that... If you can talk fast and do things slickly and hold your own in a complicated, fast-moving situation, then that somehow makes you a better, more valuable person. You know, Twitter has to be going on 40 times a day and things like that. You've got to be moving in that fast-moving world in order to be a person, to be somebody. And, of course, people with dementia are never going to be that. So... That leaves us with a choice. Are we going to say that they're somehow less human than the rest of us, that they're less worthy? Or are we going to say there's more going on in human beings than just moving fast in a fast-moving world? That actually stopping and being still and perhaps not communicating so quickly and taking time over things, perhaps doing the same thing over and over again instead of continually looking for something new, perhaps these are great things that make us more human. I guess another thing that it shows us is that although people's experience of dementia and the experience of those around them can be very variable, we have so many stories of people who, when they could no longer speak and they could no longer do things for others, could still somehow radiate such compassion and gentleness and concern that they could be a healing presence, even though, to all intents and purposes there was very little left that they could be doing. And that should perhaps be reminding us of something about what human beings can be when you strip away all the junk that we pile on ourselves in order to live our sort of normal 21st century lives. Thanks to my guests, Peter Kevin, Margaret Goodall and Akhlaq Rove. If you've been affected by any of the issues discussed in this programme, you can contact the Alzheimer's Society www.alzheimers.org.uk and look at other resources on our website. I'm Ramona Ali and you've been listening to Things Unseen, the programme for people of all faiths and none who think that there's more to life than the material world. Things Unseen was brought to you by CTVC. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.